0: If you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at Lamentations chapter 3, verses 31 through 33. And actually, it would be really helpful to have an actual Bible tonight, because we're going to be looking at a bunch of different verses. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I've got one right here for you. Would love to love to give you one. Just uh, text me or email me or just shoot me a direct message in the chat. Uh, it's got your name on it. Also, uh, just kind of a, a a warning label across tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about a pretty heavy subject in God's anger, and I just want to say at the front end that I am available. I'm always available to talk. You know, you can reach me. We can set up a, a time to grab coffee or lunch. We'd be happy to do do that. But also, if you stick around for the breakout rooms and the small group discussion. I'm going to stick around in the main room, and you can, if you want to, invite me into your breakout group. If you wanted to ask a question or have a conversation about something in particular, uh, I'll be available right after the sermon tonight as well. So, just wanted wanted you to be aware of that. Let me start by asking you: um, Have you seen our our large group promo that we that we put out for this semester, um, whether on Instagram or in the union? Uh, I see some hand clap emojis. Uh, I see a thumbs up emoji. So the the, the promo is the you know the face palm emoji. It's got all a bunch of faces around the, the four corners of that, that face palm. And uh, a key emoji is missing from the promo. And I'm not, I'm not throwing anyone else under the bus. I made it, so, so it's on me. But a key emoji is missing. If you really wanted to represent the book of Lamentations fully, then instead of you know, the, just the four kind of sad emojis, one of them would have to be you know that frowny face emoji with like the, the puffs of smoke coming out of the nose, you know which one I'm talking about? Because anger is actually a key theme throughout this book and in particular, God's anger. And uh, I'll confess the first version of the promo had that emoji. I Actually had that as one of the four, and um, I took it out. Why did I do that? i 'll be honest, i'm not entirely sure I've actually been thinking a lot about that over this past week, but my my best guess is that, well, a, you know anger is just hard to talk about, in particular god's anger is hard to talk about. and b, you know I didn't want RUF to be seen as that ministry, and I didn't want to be seen as that campus minister. Uh, I think you know the type. At least I do. You know, I, I didn't want to be that preacher that uh, you know pounds his Bible while he preaches and like shoots spittle out of his mouth as he preaches on you know anger and judgment and you know the veins popping out of his neck. That's not why I went into ministry. Uh, I went into ministry because when I was a college student at Davidson, I I experienced this liberating, exhilarating love of Jesus and wanted others to experience that love too. And that's, that's still why I'm, I'm here. That's, that's what I want you all to experience. That's what I want us to experience. And so it'd be no, normal and natural to ask, well, then Andrew, why are you preaching on God's anger tonight? And the answer is real simple. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter four that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he's, he's quoting the Old Testament there. He's quoting Deuteronomy there uh, while he's battling the devil in, in the wilderness. This is part of God's word. Lamentations is part of God's word. In fact, you know, this was the only, it's part of the only Bible that Jesus had. Jesus would have known this book intimately and he would have loved this book intimately. And so if Jesus loves this book, um, if, if he viewed this section of God's word, in fact all of God's word, as life to him, as better than bread, then we need to give it our attention. And for, for all those who seek to follow Jesus, who love him, um, this word is life for us tonight. So with all of that said, let's look at these three verses from Lamentations chapter three, starting in verse 31. I'll read it for us, and then I'll pray for us. So this is God's word. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your help. We need your help whenever we open up your word, but especially tonight as we consider a heavy topic, a hard topic to talk about, we ask that you would be merciful to us and that you would show us more of your love for us tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's almost been a nightly kind of ritual uh, during COVID times, that you know, after we put the girls to sleep, Amanda and I will pick a Netflix show uh, or a Peacock show. We just just did the Peacock trial just to watch the rest of The Office. And and you know, usually what will happen is you know we'll watch a 20-minute episode, maybe start the second one, and almost every night around like 9:15, 9, 9:30, 9, I'll fall asleep. Like I'll just I'll just go down for the count. And so Amanda's left watching. The rest of whatever show you know on her own you know she's really sweet she's really kind she lets me get some z's while she finishes her her show um but you know at some point she's got to go to bed i got to go to bed and so what will happen is you know she'll gently wake me up and say Andrew it, you know it's time time to go upstairs time to go to bed and i'm not proud of this but the Andrew that she encounters in that moment is an, inc- an incredibly grumpy, grouchy, annoyed, defensive Andrew. And now I'm just going off of Amanda's word. I don't I don't actually have memory of any of this. I'm not just saying that. I really legitimately don't remember anything I say in those moments. But apparently I'm just super snarky. I'll say things like, I'm not tired. I'm not tired. I wasn't asleep. I wasn't, a- you were asleep. I wasn't asleep. And I'll just, you know, kind of fight and get kind of, grouchy with her that's that's you know what you get when you catch me off guard that is not what you get when you catch god off guard you know in the bible god is said to be provoked to anger by his people dozens of times you know throughout the book of deuteronomy first and second kings the book of jeremiah God is provoked to anger, but not once in the entire Bible, not not once does the Bible say that God is provoked to love or that he's provoked to mercy. God's anger requires provocation. His love, his mercy, they are welled up within him and just ready to burst forth. And so if God were to fall asleep on the couch and you woke him up, that's what would pour forth love and mercy and kindness. We tend to get that flipped. We think the opposite is true of God. We, we, we think that his anger is spring loaded, is hair triggered, and his mercy needs to be prodded and goaded and, and coaxed out of him. But that's not what we see in the Bible, and in particular, that's not what we see in Lamentations. That that passage that we just read uh, from chapter three—that's that, the literary high point of the entire book. It is smack dab in the middle, and it's one of the most important passages. In fact, a lot of people will say it's it's the key to really understanding the book of Lamentations. And so, we need to we need to to consider this passage and, re- and really let it sink in. What, what, is it, what is it saying? What does it reveal about God's heart? So look with me again. Let's focus specifically on verse 33, because the text says that God does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He doesn't afflict, he doesn't, agree, he doesn't grieve from his heart. Another biblical author, the the prophet Isaiah, he'll, he'll refer to God's anger as his strange work, his strange deed, his alien work. Somehow God's anger is unnatural to him in ways in which his love and mercy are natural to him. His steadfast love in verse 32, it's abundant. That's his default setting. That's his natural state. And so I hope that's comforting. It ought to be comforting. But but what do we make of verse 32 that acknowledges that God does cause grief? Or in verse 31, go back a verse before that, it says the Lord will not cast off forever. The implication is that he actually does cast off. That It acknowledges that God casts off. So what do we, what do we do with, with this teaching? And and not only that, you know, this is just one passage, but if you've been reading through the book of Lamentations, if you've been reading it on your own this whole time, you know that God is capable of fierce, fierce anger. In Lamentations two, verse three, it says that God has cut down in his fierce anger, He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob consuming all around. What do we make of that? What do we make of verses like that? If this is what God is capable in relationship to his people, should God's people today still fear his fierce anger? Should we fear him casting us off? That's the central question that I really want to wrestle with And to kind of unpack that, I actually want to go back to um, two points that I made in passing in our first large group of the semester, and that's going to be our outline for tonight. So the two things that I want to consider tonight is, first, God's fierce anger is his love directed toward evil, and second, God's fierce anger is always the last resort, but never the final word. So first, God's fierce anger is his love directed at evil. We're going to consider two types of God's love, his parental love and his spousal love. So first, his parental love. So in, um, in the 2008 action thriller Taken, Liam Neeson plays Brian Mills, who's a former government operative trying to reconnect with his daughter Maggie. And while he's doing that, his worst nightmare comes to life. Maggie gets kidnapped by sex traffickers while in Paris with with a friend of hers. And so early in the movie, what really gets this this movie started is the famous monologue that I'm sure you all know. I'm not going to use my Liam Neeson voice. It's very impressive. You'll just have to take my word for it. But at the beginning of the movie... Liam Neeson's on the phone with one of his daughter's abductors, and he says, I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you, and I will kill you now i am not um, I'm not recommending you go watch this movie. It's incredibly violent. I am not condoning the violence in that film, but something deep within all of us is drawn to that kind of love. All of us wants a father who would go to any length to protect us, to take care of us, to defend us. At the time of Lamentations, when this this book was written, the leaders of God's people had a long history of corruption and abuses, and God had had it, God had had enough. So if you look at, if you flip, to Lamentations 4, look at verses 13 and 16. The judgment that's falling on God's people in verse 13 was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. And then at the end of of verse 16, God's word says, no honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders, the time had finally come for God to show up and defend His children against corrupt, abusive, even murderous leaders. And if you think, man, that is that is messed up that God's prophets and priests would do that. Um, sadly, that's just not a. It wasn't just a one-off event. I mean, if you think even 600 years after Lamentations, when Jesus arrives on the scene it's not like the, the religious leaders had gotten much better. I mean, think about it. Jesus's sharpest words of rebuke or condemnation are saved for the leaders of God's people. Just to give you one example, in Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 48, uh, Jesus is warning his disciples against the scribes. And he's saying to beware of them because they devour widows' houses and for a pretense, make long prayers. They, they devour widows' houses. In their greed, they have no issue just abusing and taking advantage of widows. And Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation. And then you just fast forward to today. And, and sadly, it's almost like on any given week, there's a new church leader or a new pastor who's been dismissed from their church because of adultery, greed, embezzlement. Just, it happens all the time, far, far, far too often. And so the good news, the good news for us, and especially the good news for anyone who's been abused or taken advantage of especially by religious leaders, people in spiritual authority. The good news is that God's not fooled. God's having none of it. I mean, think about it. The, the, the scariest warnings in all of scripture are those that are directed toward teachers, especially false teachers, people in authority, in oversight. Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, has this great one-liner. He says, it is the father who loves his daughter most, whose anger rises most fiercely if she is mistreated. That's the kind of father that we have in God. So we see his parental love, which is a protective, a defensive love. But also we see his his spousal love, which is a jealous love. You can turn uh, to Lamentations chapter one. We're going to look at a, a few verses there. Um, as we get into it, let me tell you a story. There was this uh, elderly Danish couple who had made it to uh, their 60th anniversary, and someone asked them, "You know, what's what's your secret? How how did you make how did you make your marriage last?" And the couple they look at each other. They don't, they don't say anything, the, the wife turns to the questioner and, uh, and she says, well, my husband, he knows that if he were to ever cheat on me, and she said in her thick Danish accent, I will kill him. And again, not condoning murder, not condoning violence, but they, they knew that their their marriage was exclusive, that there was no room for third parties, and, and that the consequences for, for breaking those vows would be severe. I mean, maybe hopefully she wouldn't literally kill her husband, but but she would let her anger known be known. In Lamentations chapter one, we see that Israel had cheated on God again and again and again. Look with me at verse two. Um, The author alludes to all of Israel's lovers. These would be the surrounding nations that God's people made covenants with, contracts with, political alliances with. They were cheating on Yahweh with other nations and with their gods. Uh, Verse 19, Again, uses this this language of infidelity of adultery, uh, where where Israel herself says, "I called to my lovers, but they deceived me." And then, just to just to drive home the point that the Bible is not a G-rated book, uh, in verses eight and nine, it, Jerusalem's sin uh, is just tinged with with really provocative language, it says, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She, she herself groans and turns her face away. And in verse nine, her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall was terrible. Again and again, Israel had sinned against the Lord and was unfaithful." Uh, Listen to one description of just kind of the the spiritual state of God's people at this time. One, One scholar writes, every conceivable form of moral and spiritual wickedness was flourishing with disastrous consequences for families, for the poor, for the victims of rampant inequality and greed, and for those caught up in the ritualized sexual abuse of the fertility cults. And all of this in a nation that claimed a covenant relationship with the living God and knowledge of his ethical standards. That is, they believed that they were walking in the way of the Lord. God's fierce anger over Israel's sin and wickedness is a sign of his jealous spousal love for his bride. He loves his bride. He loves his children so much that he's got to get angry when they are abused and when they stray. Back when I was in college and involved in RUF at Davidson as a student, I remember we took a spring break trip uh, actually out to Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, we were working with a nonprofit there. And early in the trip, I think it was the first afternoon we got there, we met one of the local leaders. Uh, a guy who wanted to be known as Coach B. He asked us to call him Coach B. He was really into basketball. So we went along with it. But right away, we realized something was was up with Coach B. The first kind of devotional that he led was really guilt-driven or guilt-based, very, very heavy-handed and moralistic. Not only that, just kind of in our interactions with him, he came across as really emotionally manipulative and borderline like verbally abusive with us. It's just, we didn't understand what was going on. It had gotten so bad. His bullying had gotten so bad that one of the girls on the trip actually broke down and and, and lost it and had to be consoled by a friend. And I'll remember I remember she and her friend, they were out on the swing set outside and and she was crying and trying to calm down. The rest of us had gone inside to prepare for another devotional, but Coach B wouldn't start it because not everyone was there. And so when the last two girls came, he turned to the one who had been crying and said, great, now that you guys are here, we can start. And since you're the last one, why don't you pray? And I'll never forget her response. Uh, This is not the point of the story, but I love it too much to to leave it out. Uh, She sat down, looked at Coach B, and she said, I would be happy to pray, not because it's a punishment, but because I love to pray. And then she prayed. But the reason I'm bringing this up, the reason I'm telling the story is that shortly after that interaction, I think it was maybe within minutes, uh, our campus minister, some of you may have met him a couple of years back, uh, a guy by the name of David Speakman he actually pulled Coach B into the hallway and closed the door. And none of us that at that time heard the conversation that we, that we had, that, that, that the two of them had. Um, we had heard later the nature of that conversation, but everything was much better after that. So even after we got back to Davidson after the trip, we found out what David had said to Coach B. And basically his message was this. He said, don't you ever talk to my students that way again. Don't you ever talk to them that way again. And also you're done leading the devotionals. I'll, I'll be leading them for the rest of the trip. And that was it. And the amazing thing is that David was and still is one of the most soft-spoken, gentle, humble, not intimidating men you'll ever meet. Yes, he did wrestle in high school and coached uh, high school wrestling and was kind of built like a wrestler, but he was super, super gentle. But his anger came out as a, as a direct response or an, an outpouring of his love for us as his students. He wasn't having any of Coach B's nonsense, and he put an end to it right then and right there. God's fierce anger is his protective parental love and his jealous spousal love directed at sin, evil, abuse, and unfaithfulness. And this actually brings us to our second point, which is God's fierce anger is always the last resort, but never the final word. So God's anger is always the last resort. Um, again, turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2. Uh, verse 17. And as you're, as you're turning there, I want to share that uh, uh, when I was in seminary, I had an Old Testament professor named Jay Sklar and took a bunch of classes from him. At the start of every single class, at the start of every single lecture, he would have a brief call and response with the entire class. So Jay would walk in and usually as he's walking in, as he's walking up to the front of the class, he'll shout out, shalom class, and then everyone will, will respond, shalom, Jay. And then he'll say, start with the Bible. And then we'll respond, not with the commentaries. And then he'll say, context. And then we all say, is king. And just after doing that again and again and again, those three things, the shalom, the peace of God, the, the, the primacy of the Bible But then also the the importance of context got ingrained into each and every one of us. And so what we see here is the context of what we need to remember is the context of what's going on uh, at this time. So look with me at verse 17 of chapter two. The author of Lamentations writes, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago he's done what he's purposed he's carried out his word which he commanded long ago so here's where we need context what what does he mean by God carrying out his word that he commanded long ago well what he's referring to i mean if i can put it as simply as this is the whole story of the bible leading up to this moment and and in particular you know he's referring to the, the word that God spoke, and, and let me just let me just give you like a two minute flyover of Old Testament history, okay? So this word that God spoke long ago, so eight hundred years over eight hundred years before this book that we're reading was written, Moses had led the Israelites out of out of slavery in Egypt during the Exodus. And after they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, right before they're about to enter the land that God promised them, Moses warned God's people. He warned them of what would happen if they were unfaithful to God and unfaithful to his covenant. And part of those warnings, you can can go and look them up Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, just to give you two chapters to look at. Part of those warnings, Include a warning of the exile, you know, God had warned over eight hundred years before if, if his people would be unfaithful and turn from him, that He would remove them from the land, and that's exactly what's happening here in lamentations, not only that, you know two hundred years before lamentations, prophets like Joel and Amos. We're warning God's people against the coming day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And that is what we see here. And, and even if you think, okay, well, Andrew, well, 800 years or even 200 years, like that's that's a long chunk of time. Maybe God's people forgot. Just 18 years before this book, the prophet Jeremiah was laying out all sorts of warnings, warning God's people of God's fierce anger, his wrath, his judgment that was coming over sin and wickedness and unfaithfulness. There were so many repeated warnings that the question in our minds shouldn't be, how could God do this? How could God turn his anger, his fierce anger on his people? But rather the question as we read the story of the Bible should be, what took him so long? What took him so long? And again, it's it's in God's nature to delay judgment. It's always the last resort. One of the most famous verses in all of scripture, actually, I think Eric's probably going to preach on it in in a few weeks uh, later this semester, is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It's a great passage to memorize. But in that passage, we we hear about the nature of God. God himself says, as he passes by Moses, his servant, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. The, The Hebrew word for slow to anger literally means long of nostrils long of nostrils. And, and if you think about it, you know, picture like a, an angry bull that's just, you know, ready to charge at you. That, that would be uh short nosed, right? Short of nostrils. God is the opposite. He is long suffering. Some of you maybe think, maybe you grew up thinking, or maybe you think right now that you have a God that just, can't wait to teach you a lesson. He can't wait to discipline you. And so in your relationship with God, maybe you're waiting constantly for the shoe to drop. Maybe you're constantly walking on eggshells around the Lord because you assume that he's just, he's just ready to get you. And that is not, that is not the God that we see in the Bible. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. One of Jesus's followers, the Apostle Peter, uh, he wrote in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. God's anger is always the last resort he would much rather exercise patience. Why? Why would he be so patient? Turn with me to Lamentations 4, verse 22. It's our last point. God's patient because his judgment is never the final word. The last half of that Peter passage is, God is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. In in Lamentations 4, verse 22, we read The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. There's an end to his punishment, and he's going to show mercy and pour out forgiveness. He longs to do it. That's his natural work, that's his default setting. And his judgment, when it comes, is meant to to stir up repentance, to turn people's hearts away from idols and toward him. He wants to reclaim his wayward people. And so as we close, I just want to summarize a few things. We've seen how God's fierce anger, is it's parental, it's his spousal love directed at evil. We see that he's a protective and jealous God, jealous for the hearts and lives of his people. We've seen that his anger is the last resort, but never the final word. It's, it's always meant to serve the purposes of his rescue mission. But before we close, we got to address the, the so what question, the burning question. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with you? And should we, should should God's people still be afraid of his fierce anger? Should I, should you still be afraid of his fierce anger? And let me just kind of address the two groups of people that are listening tonight. The first group, if you think, yes, we absolutely should fear God's fierce anger, we have to fear his fierce anger, you need to be reminded that there's no double jeopardy when it comes to God. There's no double jeopardy with the Lord. At the cross, Jesus experienced the full force of God's wrath over sin and evil, over wickedness and corruption, so that you could experience the full force of his grace and mercy and forgiveness. At the cross, God poured out his fierce anger on his only begotten son, so that his fierce love could be poured out on you and on anyone who would turn to him. And so from the first centuries of the church until now, Christians have believed that at the cross, God's wrath and judgment, his anger, they've all been fully satisfied. If not, if they weren't satisfied at the cross, if that didn't happen, If Jesus didn't satisfy God's anger, if he didn't absorb God's wrath, then the cross is completely meaningless. It's utterly meaningless. The the crosses that we wear on our necks, the crosses that churches put up on steeples, they're nothing more than an ancient form of a noose or an electric chair. it It would be utterly meaningless to display a cross if it didn't satisfy God's judgment over sin. But for the Christian, for the person whose only true hope is the love of Jesus, which covers all of our sins, the cross is a most beautiful sight. It's a reminder of the peace that we have with God through Jesus. Now, the second group. If you're part of this second group of people, you might think, Maybe some people need to fear God's anger. Maybe people like Hitler, Bin Laden, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, those people, they need to fear God's anger, but not me. I'm not like them. I'm not evil. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't raped anyone. I'm not some corrupt, abusive leader. Um, I haven't committed any high crimes, misdemeanors, Okay. I mean, fair enough. Grant you all of that. But just consider this, you know, those, um, or you know how, I guess, before the pandemic, the the Red Bull car would come on campus. That still happened. The Red Bull car would kind of pull up and they'd give out uh, free samples. Maybe they don't do this anymore. They did this back in my day. Back in my day, they would give out these free Red Bull samples. Well, imagine Instead of a Red Bull car, imagine a brand new state-of-the-art prototype Tesla rolled up onto campus, and Elon Musk jumped out. And both he and the Davidson Bio Department, they were proud to announce that Elon would give $10 million of his own fortune to anyone who would allow Neuralink to put a chip inside their head. And there's 100% guaranteed no side effects whatsoever. Don't have to worry about any adverse side effects. All you had to do was carry that chip in your head for one week and you get $10 million. I mean, how many people do you think would, would take that deal? How many people do you think would sign up? I mean, I would, w- wouldn't you? But what if there was one stipulation? What if, in order to get the $10 million, you had to consent to have all of your words, your thoughts, everything you looked at for that entire week, you had to consent to have it recorded? And not just recorded, but then played back on all the TVs in the union and played on the big drop down screen in Commons and live streamed on YouTube with links sent to all your family, all your friends, even your grandma. Okay, how many of you would still walk away with $10 million? I mean, how many of you would be like independently wealthy and could retire right after graduation? I mean, maybe some of you are thinking, you know, for one week, yeah, sure, yeah, I'll I'll do that. What about for two weeks? What if it was extended to a full month? What about a year? I'm pretty certain that I'll never make $10 million in my life. Um, probably most of you won't either. But I would never take that deal. Because I, I know that if I, if I would, that would crush me. To have all my words and thoughts and glances on display for anyone to see, it would crush me it would crush Amanda, it would crush our girls, it would be devastating. We all need to wrestle with the fact that a day that's far more terrible, far more, far more awful than the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, that that day is coming. A day when the thoughts of every heart will be exposed. When Jesus comes back, at a time none of us expect to judge the earth and it will be too late to repent. We all have to wrestle with that. The good news of the gospel is God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. He won't turn away a single person who humbles herself or himself and turns to him. Our God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Like the father of the prodigal son, our God loves to shower love and blessing, grace and mercy on every child who comes home to him. Doesn't matter how long you've been rolling in the mud. Doesn't matter how long you've been eating with the pigs. You don't have to clean yourself up first. First you just need to come home. Come home and see your heavenly father beaming with joy, running toward you with arms flung wide open, ready to hug and kiss you and to get your mud on his clothes. Hear him shout for all to hear, let's celebrate. My child was dead, but is alive again was lost but is now found. The party on that day will be filled with more joy and laughter than any party that was ever thrown at F. There'll be more pride there than at any graduation party. There'll be more love there than at any wedding. And you've been invited, you've been invited. So would you come home? Would you join the feast? Let's pray. Father, Lord, help us to see you as you are and not as we want you to be. Lord, would you fill our hearts with love and wonder and joy at the length that you have gone to save your people? And Lord, would you give us a far more beautiful vision of our Savior. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.